My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am Iron Man. And welcome to the post-credit pod. Eric and I are back after a, a small hiatus because you know what? We had to fit in time to rewatch the original Star Wars movies, which is always a pleasure for me because I'm a massive Star Wars fan. Eric, on the other hand, does not share my love. So you have that kind of dynamic to look forward to as we kind of revisit the original trilogy. We're also continuing our Mandalorian recap. We got episodes three and four coming up today. But before we start into our super nerdy, super awesome, this is my dream podcast, Star Wars edition. Uh, there's some big news of the last couple days. I would say that the top story is that Michael B. Jordan will be producing a live-action Static Shock movie for Warner Brothers' new line, like the, the DCEU, probably. Uh, we're not entirely sure like what continuity it's going to take. We're not entirely sure what shape it's going to take. But this is really cool news. It's news fans have been calling for for years because Virgil Hawkins, a.k.a. Static, a very popular comics character who had one of the dopest animated cartoon shows of our millennial childhood, finally coming to live action. And Eric, specifically, I'm excited about this because this is essentially WB's Spider-Man. You know, he's a 14-year-old, 15-year-old, kind of awkward kid in, in high school who gets these powers and has to navigate the daily social life with his wisecracking crime-fighting antics. And not only that, this combined with Harley Quinn and Spider-Verse are three movies of characters that have been introduced in the last 30 years. And before that, every single superhero movie in existence was essentially an 80-year-old character. So it's cool kind of seeing this, this new trend developing where we're, we're getting these fresh characters, these fresh concepts, and we're getting them to screen better late than never. Well, if you look how uh, I would assume that The Boys is pretty new characters as well, right? Um, I was specifically thinking uh, movies. Oh, I know. Yeah, you are correct. I'm just saying... In general, as the genre expands, we're going to see newer characters like these continue to make a name for themselves. What surprises me is that you caught the cartoon as a kid, I recall, when that was on. And you're a bit older than me. By the time that that was on, for me, I was like past that phase of my childhood. Um, What was that, like 2003, 2004 maybe? And that was his, that's sort of like the character's biggest claim to fame so far, right? Yeah. Is that, I mean, is, is the, that serious? The comics, the comics character is popular, but certainly not, you know, massive like a, like a Superman or Batman. The first episode of Static Shock debuted in September 2000. Oh, so it's older than I thought. Oh, yeah, wow. And that ran for four seasons, which was really just an excellent cartoon, like an urban perspective, which is severely lacking in the kind of white-dominated... Uh, Right. suburban type of, of, you know, like the most kind of city sick slicker life we got was Spider-Man and he's from Queens. So it, it's always been a kind of very specific demographic and niche in comics. So it now, was- did, we, did we know that this film was coming or the news of it even being a thing was new? Because I thought I knew this already. So fans have been clamoring for it for a while and he's often been thought of as, as a really great addition to what DC is going on. There's been nothing official. This was definitely like 
a surprise news, even if it was trending this direction. You know what I mean? I mean, DC itself didn't break the news, right? Like this broke through the trades. Uh, Yeah. Hollywood reporter broke it. Uh, You know, it's interesting too, because we don't know if it takes place in the DCEU proper. We don't know if it's going to be one of these like standalones, but it would make sense to have him be with, with the main crew. Cause this is a guy who can. Would you like to see? Yeah. 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 Which would you like to see? Uh, I, w- I would like to see him in, in the DCEU. I think that would be really cool. And one of my favorite episodes of Static Shock that I remember is when Jon Stewart, Green Lantern, was like stuck in, in his city and they teamed up for like a crime fighting adventure. Oh, so cool. that was really cool. And I, th- I think maybe based on the, the timeline as well. And Static is also a character who's popped up in like the Batman Beyond uh, future looking Justice League. And so when he's a a full on adult and everything. So he's just had a cool run intersecting with other great characters. And I think he'd be a great counterweight to this Justice League as that Spider-Man-esque like 15 year old kid who's who's super cool and not annoying like Barry Allen. They would have to cast him as a teenager, right? Like it's guaranteed to be like a young kid. Or or maybe they'll age him up a little bit. Like Kelvin Harrison Jr. is a name that, that is being popular fan casting. I saw um, the kid from... Uh, Stranger Things. Stranger Things, yeah. Caleb McLaughlin. Jarrell Jerome, who was in Moonlight. And um, Ava DuVernay's really powerful Netflix miniseries. The name escapes me at the moment. So those are some of like, the popular fan casting names that I've seen pop up. And any one of them would be cool in my book. Hits Bond Theory, does Michael B. Jordan getting involved with DC bode well for the chance of him potentially playing a famous DC character whose shoes we know need filling? Now, he has said, and for everyone who's a little bit lost, he's been a popular candidate to potentially play Superman. And they actually, WB, did actually try to convince Will Smith to play Superman in the mid 2000s. So this is not an unheard of move. Uh, he has said that there is a, a comics version of Superman that's black. Uh, he's a different character, but essentially the same role. He said he would prefer to play that version and not like the Clark Kent. I am not familiar with that character, but listen, Michael B. Jordan is a guy who's continually on the rise. Every time we talk about him, something new and exciting is going on in his career. Anything is possible. What about uh, John Stewart? I mean, I, I would love that. As, that as would well. be ideal. I mean, as that far as, because like, right, like, if they get like John Stewart and that Green Lantern film strikes me as something that if they get the right pieces in place, it could do really well. But if they don't, I could see it once again being a problem. Yeah, because it's a great concept for the comic book medium because it's just all imagination whatever you can conjure it's a little bit difficult exactly. to get it in live action so him now getting in bed with the dceu does raise my eyebrows a bit to think that there's something more going on behind the scenes down the line now that is just a complete guess on my part but you put out a tweet um of the films he's produced so far and outside of the Creed film, this would be his biggest one yet. Oh, yeah, definitely. I so mean, this guy is active behind the scenes as, as a producer. He's making his directorial debut soon. He's writing scripts. He's a, a real multi-hyphenate, but so I, presumably this would be a blockbuster. Yeah. So I just wonder if there's a part of me that thinks, like, you know, they he told them or they told him, hey, you help me get this made if you play X character. We'll see. Point is, it's a great news that 
he's staying involved in the comic book world. Yeah. And you're excited by another piece, of, a little piece of DC news lately, correct? Oh, well, this is just a quick one. But yeah, over the weekend, set photos from the Batman. And I just want to interject quickly and tell all of our listeners, Eric is drinking out of a Batman coffee cup right now. Uh, yeah. He's very on yeah. brand. <laughs> I love it. I didn't even realize that, to be honest with you. I love it. No, it's, it's perfect. Been a long, it's been a long day. Um, so they're still filming. And as we've talked about it, uh, Sounds like it's going to be based a lot on the long Halloween, and ipso facto, they were shooting what appears to be a Halloween party scene. And in that scene, there is somebody wearing a Superman costume. Now, the reason I, I, I wanted to bring this up is because you and I spent a lot of time when we talked about the Batman, <clears throat> talking about how we were excited for a standalone Batman film that didn't have to deal with all the team-up bullshit all of the world building and stuff like that. So I just wanted to hear your thoughts on what you think about that. If you think Superman will be a character down the line in this universe, or if it's just sort of a wink and nod type deal, which is what I hope it is. That's I'm very curious if it's, hey, there was a guy in the background wearing this thing and we thought that'd be fun. Or if it's actually supposed to be a real Easter egg, because Let's say that, for the sake of argument, Superman does exist in the universe. That creates an entire new set of questions and complications narrative-wise that we would have to answer. Like, okay, is it Henry Cavill's Superman? If not, like, which universe is this, is this in? Like, if, if, like, if it is, then how is he not Ben Affleck? Like, there's a million things. So, so my gut tells me that this is something that won't matter at all. And that, like, since the beginning... There's always the option if they want to retroactively make this part of the universe slash set up a future crossover that they can, but that this yeah. is 99.99999% standalone. Agreed. In, in, in what that means. Agreed. I, I hope it's not like a whole. I mean, you and I had specifically said that this Batman almost looks more grounded and gritty than any Batman film ever. So once you involve the Man of Steel, you immediately lose that. Because then you're dealing with aliens and flying and superpowers. So I hope, I, I do like the idea of characters existing in a world and us not seeing them. I mean, that's just something I like across all TV and film. But in this case, I hope it's a quick wink, a quick nod, and then that's it. Well, I agree with you. Now, before we move on to Mandalorian, let's just give a quick thumbs up, thumbs down. The big release of this weekend was Netflix's The Trial of Chicago 7, written, directed by Aaron Sorkin. It's an Oscars hopeful. To anyone listening who still hasn't caught it, should they watch it? Should they not? I personally thought it was solid. I thought it was good in terms of like, hey, we've been completely bereft of any type of cinematic movies so far. So in that regard, I was like, yeah, this was pretty solid. I don't think it's the Oscars heavy many expected it to be, but I would say, hey, go watch it. I think those are pretty much my thoughts exactly, Brandon. Um, it is, I found it to be a very manipulative film in the sense that like um, everything is to draw those tears out of you in that final scene. Yeah. And, you, and there are times where Sorkin doing his Sorkin thing, as I wrote in my piece, feels out of place. Like, I don't, there was one scene in particular where they're, they take a break during court and they're all talking amongst themselves. 
And I just had a hard time buying that like a bunch of people fighting for their lives would be so concerned with like giving these operatic speeches. Um, so while the writing was still strong, I found them to fall hollow in the sense that it cheapened what was already a very real and powerful story. Like you didn't have to, like, you know, if you're talking about Steve Jobs, right? You've got to really do a lot of work to make him seem like a hero. And, 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 <laughs> and, 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 and so you've got to, write in all these grand speeches about his goals and dreams and desires to hone in all of the good parts of him that you want us to see. I didn't think that that was the case with this. Um, now that said, there are times in, in the courtroom where, you know, this is where he excels. Yeah. Um, but as you said, for this to be a Oscar hopeful, I think speaks more to the lack of quality films this year than it does to the quality of this particular film. But all that said, in a year where we haven't had much, uh, yeah, it's worth the watch. <laughs> I mean, there's, yeah. This is only Sorkin's second feature as a director, and I, and I think you can still feel that his prowess behind the camera does not catch up to the, the, the moving rhythms of his famous dialogue you know he's yeah. still got a bit of a ways to go yeah. to make them match up in terms of excitement and compelling now i will say that uh well i didn't think his performance was anything mind-blowing sasha baron cohen the fact that this guy could go out and do this and then the next time we're gonna see him is in borat is simply impressive <laughs> is it like a mind-blowing portrayal of abby hoffman no but is it crazy when you're like, oh, that's the same guy who does Borat? In that framework, it's absolutely incredible. Which, and then quick on Borat, when we talked about it, I said to you, I predict that he gets someone high up in the Trump admin. And from what I've read, that is going to be the case. Well, that is going to be very fun to watch. I'm hopefully going to grab that screener in the next week or so. Yeah, right? Fingers crossed. Yeah. Uh, so, today, quickly, today Seth Rogen tweeted that he's seen it six times and he can't wait to see it again. He said it's got some of the funniest scenes he's ever seen and he's excited for us. So that's like yeah, my so, Seth Rogen. The hype is building quick and fast. All right. Well, that makes me extra curious into what is the hell is going on for Borat too. I'm pumped to see that. But before we revisit that character, let's revisit probably the biggest TV sensation of last year, and that is The Mandalorian. In our last pod, we did a kind of recap review of episodes one and two. Here we move into episode three and four. Now, last week, you and I were pretty excited. I, I have said many times on record I, I wasn't in love with The Mandalorian, but I did enjoy it and re-watching it with a little bit lowered expectations. Those first two episodes are really big, bang, explosive blockbuster, and I enjoyed them. These two is where it starts to take a turn, I think, into something that is not quite as exciting and thrilling as it wants to be. Now, starting with episode three, you really start to see them bond a little bit. And who I mean is Baby Yoda, which of course we know is not the name, but that's what we're calling him, and the Mandalorian. I mean, Baby Yoda's playing with the uh, the shifter, the top. He, he's basically doing everything a cute puppy does. And yet, even though the Mandalorian can feel himself growing attached to this thing, he does go back 
to his planet and deliver him to the client, a.k.a. Vanna Herzog. And it's just another scene-chewing scene from him where Mando asks, he's like, what are you going to do with the kid? And uh, the client is like, I forget his quote exactly, but he's like, is it not the guild's code that once business has been transacted? Like, dude, he is. His voice, I said it in like last pod. It's the most Star Wars voice I've ever heard in my life. And every time he's on screen, I'm glued. And you know what I like too? He tells Mandalorian as, if, as he gives him the Beskar armor, to the Vinet goes the spoils. And it's very interesting to me that a very earthbound English idiom made its way into a galaxy far, far away to the Victor goes the spoils is the famous quote here on our world. I am just so curious what other like American English colloquialisms might exist in the Star Wars universe. Like that would just be funny to see space people saying, you know, Americana, like, hey bro, tit for tat. Yeah, yeah, kill two droids with one blaster. Exactly, like, <laughs> yeah. what, what variations exist in the Star Wars universe just to spice up their language. He also, I, is this a vague threat where he's like, these days it's harder to find the Mandalorian than it is to find the Beskar steel. Like, is he implying that, hey, all y'all are dropping like fly. Like, is that what he's saying there? Because. I sort of picked so it up. My read on the situation was that because all the Mandalorians only go up one at a time and everything, the greater universe at large thinks that they are, for the most part, like extinct, like definitely an endangered species, and that not even Werner Herzog and all his post imperial grungy wisdom is quite aware of like what's going gotcha. on on the underground. Okay. That's what I thought. Okay, gotcha. But that leads me into, into again, why I've said that I think this is too minimalistic of a series and too thin of writing. Well, let me cut in here because while I agree with where you're going, I think that that becomes the case in episode four. I think in episode three, they're still carrying the serialized through line that you and I enjoy. So why do you feel like uh, episode three goes off the rails? Well, I don't think, see, I think episode four more so goes off the rails, even though there is impressive set pieces that we'll get to. But Right after their conversation, we then spend uh, about eight and a half minutes on the Beskar armor alone, which is just an inordinate amount of time to be spending on what is undoubtedly a cool MacGuffin slash like costume design, but is ultimately relatively meaningless to the audience. You know, I I don't need that much time on the construction of his armor. It's just a kind of cool filler plot movement. And it leads into really more so of the same later on, even though it's done better. Yeah, okay, no, because I, because this is where they do start to go off the path of the main plot. Um, But episode three, and you're totally right, like she explicitly says when she explains how those, uh, those little things on his arm work, what are those things that shoot out? Yes, I had it. I had it written down here. Whistling bird. Yeah. So she literally like overtly tells him like this kills a lot of people. Wink, wink. You may need this later. Yeah. Yeah. I do see what you mean in terms of the thin, the thin writing and the odd pacing. And then you know, after he gets the armor, he 
is essentially going back to Carl Weathers to get a new job. And the, the door to the bar opens and he hasn't even entered yet. And every single head in the bar turns as if that's not a normal thing to happen for the bar door opening. And then he fills frame. He does look super badass and cool in his new Beskar armor. But it's the type of very momentary over the topness that like, okay, Quentin Tarantino does that type of thing well. Here in Star Wars, I'm like, why would everyone just immediately turn and be so aghast when the doorframe isn't even filled yet? Well, isn't it because that steel is now so rare? Right, but they all turn before they even know who's there. Like, oh, okay. That's the normal thing for someone to be coming and going in a, in like a busy, crowded right, bar. Right, right, right. And I know this is such a stupid nitpick, but it's the type of like leap too far that, that compounds over the course of the eight episodes, in my opinion. And this also... This scene has Carl Weathers just going for it. Mando! <laughs> they like, all hate you, Mando! Yeah, it's just outrageous. It's like, yeah, what show are you in, Carl Weathers? My most trusted partner. Like, I get that he's trying to talk down to all the other, like, bounty hunters and be like, hey, step your game up. But, like, okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's just insane. It really is. It's insane. And, and so the reason I also say it, it's thin writing leads me to essentially the climax of the episode. Now, I think there is value in criticizing what you like instead of saying, hey, this piece of shit that everyone thinks is a piece of shit is the piece of shit. Like, there's no value. You don't learn anything from that. So the last 10 minutes of this episode is essentially a Jason Bourne-like assault on the compound when he's decided, okay, I'm saving the child. It's awesome. It is so much fun. It's so exciting. It's amazing choreography and stunt work. But at the same time, in it, what is a 35-minute episode, we now have like an eight-minute Beskar montage and a 10-minute action sequence. That's doing like the thrust of the narrative propulsion instead of actual writing and like kind of character interactions and, and plot. Like we know that he's grown to care for the child and that is a big point for his character. But this is a story that uses motion in, in terms of development, in place of development. See, I find that this sort of, uh, I guess I'll call it, you know, the third act uh, assault is one of the best set pieces of the season. Yeah, but I agree. I, I am not saying that it's not. I'm just saying that is the problem that it's a kind of whole purpose is to be like, hey, instead of writing, this is dope. Well, yeah. Okay. And that's fair because... At the time when this first came out last year, I, I wrote that perhaps this is Star Wars as it should be um, in the sense that like the episode was less than 40 minutes long. It was moving. You're getting action. You're getting new characters. You're getting every, everything for me that I liked from the films over the course of 38 minutes uh, topped off by... You know, again, and we'll get into this once I talk. Once we talked about, once we talk about the first three films, the slickness of the budget and the production is incredible. This is better. This is better action than I've seen in six of the Star Wars films. So for me, that carries a lot of weight, and that is why I wrote this is what Star Wars should be like. When have you ever seen such a fluid action set piece that pretty much lasted for about 20 minutes? And I, re I really, truly do love it. Like I said, it's a Jason Bourne-ish type of assault on this compound where he's just going hallway to hallway, dismantling overmatched opposition. 
but I would have loved that paired with a bit more externalization of how he arrived at this conclusion. Now, we do get a modicum of it during the Beskar scene when his female um, Mandalorian counterpart says, foundlings are the future. We know he's a foundling. We know that that's kind of his, his hook into the Mandalorian culture that they saved him, basically. And, and we're left to infer that he sees baby Yoda as a foundling, and that's how he connects to, to him. But that is a, a big leap for, for the average Disney Plus non-nerd slash little kid watching it. Right. I would have loved just a little bit of him expressing himself. Now, I know that's not the neo-Western style, but I do think we can modernize the motif with a little bit of genuine character development. That's, that's what I would have loved. Like I would have been fine if this was 45 minutes with two conversations that give me a little bit more insight into he's like, into how he arrives at, okay, I'm throwing my life away to save this kid. It's funny that you say that. And I guess that that speaks to the general shallowness of Star Wars writing. Because what I enjoy about the, like, cause I went back through my notes from when I first watched this last year. And what I enjoyed about the action in this is that because you're really only concerned about the child and Mando, the stakes are so much more personal and smaller than any Star Wars film out there. In the Star Wars films, you're worried about entire planets and the galaxy and the Jedi and everything comes with such grand weight that when they're having these, you know, these third act battles, you're, you're exactly. You're not really tied to any one character. You know, Luke is going to live, you know, Ray is going to live, you know, the planets are going to on the whole be okay in this, because you're only worried about two characters, every blaster fired counts. And I, and, and I think that that's sort of why I enjoy this show more than most Star Wars films, because not only are you getting the, the polish of sci-fi, but as you just said, you're getting Western motifs that reel it all in and weigh it down, that make all of this explosiveness more worthwhile. Right. That's fair. That's a fair counterpoint, too. And I do like the smaller stakes. But as we saw in Logan, you can have those conversations that provide emotional insight into yeah, your character. Sure. That's what I wish there was a little bit more. Well, I would and, love to see more of that this year. You know, now, now, now that we've seen his face, let's find out more about who he is. And we find a bit more about him in terms of kind of the guy he wants to be in episode four, which, again, has another fantastic action set piece, but he's even more disconnected from, I would say, primary narratives than any other episode so far in the season. Uh, for those struggling to remember, episode four, they are basically on this very remote farming type planet in which Mando is hoping to lay low with Baby Yoda for several months. And these villagers who have been attacked by raiders essentially hire him and Gina Carano whose character's name I can't re uh, remember, but she plays a- Paradoon. Thank you, yes. Paradoon. Yeah, and she's a former shock trooper for the good guys. Who's a great character. Love her. She's, she's, she's pretty badass in this. Also, fun fact, used to date uh, Henry Cavill. Oh my God, I did not know that. Wow. Yeah, he, he's a big MMA fan, you know, because she's a former M professional MMA fan. That, that I knew, yeah, but yeah. I did not know. Is she British now, right? No, no, she's American. Oh, wow. Henry fucking Campbell. Okay. And so, <laughs> and so essentially <laughs> they get hired as this village's 
protectors in what is a very blatant Magnificent Seven type of throwback to a very well-worn Western motif to continue that. Now, my problem here is that this is really when the episodic nature of season one starts to take hold. And from here on, the rest of the season, very much challenge villain of the week and not... And this one in four, five, and six is when they adopt a of the week type theme. And it's here. And again, it's odd because usually when you would do this, like you would think it's because of a budget thing, right? Like why would they, why would you ship them off to this one locale? Which we never um, really return to. Which you don't return to except, you know, like they did in Fly with Breaking Bad. It's a bottle episode. It's just not a good one. But the problem here is that there's still so much sci-fi action in it that they're clearly not pinching pennies. So Yet as a Disney Plus blockbuster, I didn't think that opening raid on the village was nearly violent enough for me to be like very emotionally invested in, in the long-term safety of these people. Not to say like I'm a dick who's like, oh, these backwater space rednecks deserve it. No, of course not. But like, you know, move along, Mando. Let's get it going. I don't care about this. So what do you think? Do you think it was a storytelling choice? Do you think it had to do with constraints on the budget? Why do you think that they made this pivot, this mid-season pivot? I think this was John Favreau, who's the showrunner and creator. I think this was his vision for the show. I, I just don't necessarily uh, agree with it. I think it's cool visiting different pockets of the universe, but not at the expense of the central story. And, and what this is is really kind of an excuse to show off how blockbuster this TV show really is. Right. Which just doesn't merit. It's not worth it in terms of uh, in terms of. Like, is this a valuable episode of television? You mentioned The Fly and Breaking Bad. Bottle episodes are famous for advancing a character's internal journey as the external journey essentially is is stuck for one episode. I don't think this necessarily does this. Yes, he, he does a good thing. It in the weirdest can... way. Like, they float the idea of him having feelings for this woman that he just met, and she is, like, prepared to settle down with him. Like, no, stay with us. Take off your mask and raise my kid with me. Like, what the fuck is going on? I found that you you nailed it. They do try to sort of advance him as a character, but I think it falls very flat. I, I do think it succeeds in that it shows that he has a depth of good that expands yeah. outside of just his own goals and that he's willing to go out of his way for... He's not a complete dick. Right, that you know, he's willing to not only risk his life and time, but to do it for free, right? Like he, you know. Um, yeah. So I do think it succeeds in that regard, but I did find the sort of attempt to domesticate him with that woman very out of place. And this is what I mean when I've said on previous pods that Baby Yoda's cuteness papers over a thin script. You know, when he breaks up him and, him and uh, Gina Carano's fight, sipping 
soup and becoming an instant meme when he, when he's playing with the kids as Mando's like, ah, oh, what could my life be? Like, and then, and then eats that frog. Yeah, I mean, it's so adorable and so cute and so compelling that you forget that, like, okay, this is a forced romance. Okay, this village is clownish. Okay, the main villager is Pillboy from The Good Place. Like, I can't get that out of my head. Wait, who? Um, Jason Mendoza's best friend in The Good Place, who works uh-huh. at the folks home, whose name is Pillboy, is the main villager who, like, who's one of the two who, who approaches <laughs> him at a ship and is like, can we hire you? And I'm like, oh, hey, no Pillboy. Kidding. Oh, I do see that now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good call. And again, that's we've said in this pod that like we hate when people are saying like, "Oh, it took me out of like the the show," but like to see something so drastically out of place, it did take me a little bit out of it. I'm like, that's Pillboy. Um, now let me ask you this, since you're you're the uh, Star Wars guy here, where does that Walker fight scene rank on your all time Walker fight scenes? Pretty good, pretty good. Not, I mean, not amazing, but. Listen, I enjoy the action, and especially for a TV show, it's really impressive. But because I'm not super involved with the emotional human stakes that are up for grabs here, I'm just not so blown away by the action that it makes up for how uninvested I am in the plot of this specific episode. I will say that when they're going out into the woods to find it, and they're in the dark, and then it sort of lights up and like the shadows behind the trees, and you just see like the red glow. Very, 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 very really cool. Shot. Yeah, it's, it's a well done, and this, I believe this was also directed by Deborah Chow. I, uh, I've got it right here. Uh, no, th- no, this one is Bryce Dallas oh, wow. Howard. Well, yeah. that's particularly impressive because she's more of a callow director; she doesn't have as much experience. But and just going back to episode three, Deborah Chow. Man, give her more action because that, that oh. assault compound was great. Um, I will say that of the three bottles, which I would consider episodes four, five, and six, this one is the best one by a mile. Yeah, so. I would agree with that. But again, that's, I guess, based on what we've said, that's not saying enough for the middle of this season. Yeah. Um, is this a planet that we've gone to for the first time? Uh, I'm not sure. So I, my Star Wars knowledge does not totally extend to the to each and every like planetary location like i know some of the main ones but i couldn't tell you everything it was a gorgeous planet gorgeous i love it it was so like the idea and right like so in that sense that's where sort of the of the week format could work right showing us new corners and taking us new spots that we haven't seen especially when they look this good is great but but in terms of the drama that's where it sort of slips so the key for them is while I would love, I wouldn't mind one or two one-offs per season. It's not three or four though. Right, exactly. They've got to keep that balance. And something I forgot to mention at the top of the episode when we were talking about the Batman today, the Hollywood Reporter reported, sorry, uh, that the Batman is using the Mandalorian's volume technology, which is how they, you know, ninety-nine percent of the Mandalorian was filmed in L.A with giant LED Florida ceiling screens that project the background. So and sense. so, yeah, I mean, an amazing technology. Now I always will prefer on location because I just think that gives you something you don't get elsewhere. But for the purposes of COVID, for the purposes of staying on track, for the purposes of, of, of actually seeing the Batman at some point, thought it was really cool yeah, that, they're, sure. that they're using this technology and that it's not Disney proprietary. Like all studios can apparently get in on this, which is 
probably overall good news for the future of cinema, even if we lose something in the on-location scenes. I mean, the fact that a Batman film is taking technology that they used on a TV show just goes to show you how much TV has caught up. It's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, Star Wars, I love. Mandalorian, I have my gripes, as, as you've heard here. When it comes to the originally tr- original trilogy, though, man, it, it's probably my favorite piece of pop culture entertainment ever. I, I just, I truly love it. And so as we lead into the return of the Mandalorian, Eric and I are revisiting all nine saga films, taking them, taking them trilogy by trilogy. This was the original trilogy uh, lead up. And we're gonna jump into our awards and, and categories as we do every time we revisit a classic movie. So in looking back, the real MVP award to me for the original trilogy falls to two characters in particular, and that is Obi-Wan Kenobi, my favorite character in the entire Star Wars saga, and uh, Yoda. Now, for the former, Obi-Wan essentially recognizes his mistakes and how under his tutelage, Anakin rose to become Darth Vader and end the Jedi Order as we know it. And because of that guilt and that remorse and that failure, he essentially sacrifices the rest of his life to looking over Luke, ushering him into the light side of the Force, and also serving as the narrator of this space opera for you and I, Joe Schmo at home watching, you know? He's the one who tells Luke that the Force is what gives the Jedi his power. And he's the one who tells Luke what a lightsaber is. He reveals selects a select truths about Luke's lineage from a certain point of view to quote him himself. He recounts that the Jedi Knights were the guardians of peace and justice in the old Republic for a thousand generations. So in essence, Obi-Wan serves as the narrator of this operatic space fantasy overflowing with fantastical possibility. And he conveys everything you and I as the audience need to know. And he does that in such a compelling fashion. And Alec Guinness is the only actor in Star Wars history to get an Oscar nomination for acting. So I think all of those things combine to make him one of the most interesting characters, one of the most compelling, one of the best. And I think there's a reason that he's endured. You know, we wouldn't be getting an Obi-Wan Disney Plus series with Ewan McGregor if he wasn't beyond a fan favorite character, as if he didn't have more story to tell, which he does. So for that reason, he gets my number one MVP. Number two is Yoda, because Yoda physically- Oh, hold on. Who you very, with a funny line, blamed last week. Yeah. Fucking up the whole thing. So now you're saying he's the MVP as well. He is, but he still is to blame. Okay, please go ahead. As is Obi-Wan. Okay, go ahead. And believe, and believe, Believe me, I, I don't ever shirk the responsibility that, that they deserve, the accountability that they, that they deserve. <laughs> but yeah, Yoda, to me, is the physical embodiment of the Force. He is Luke's moral guide throughout the latter two episodes of the saga, and he serves as the vehicle for Star Wars's biggest ideas. Now, I've written extensively on this for Observer, especially for the 40th anniversary of The Empire Strikes Back uh, earlier this year. But he is the kind of very philosophy of the Force and Lucas's original ideas for the trilogy. Luminous beings are we. Judge me not by my size. He is constantly trying to expand (laughs) Luke's worldview and stress that the Jedi are the keepers of the peace. If if Obi-Wan is the context of the Jedi, 
Yoda is the actualization of its philosophy and heart. And I believe they are kind of, not yin and yang, but complementary pieces of the holistic picture of the Force. And for those reasons, I really do believe that he is probably Lucas's best overall creation. And there's a reason why, you know, Roger Ebert and every major movie reviewer of the uh, 1970s and 80s were so awestruck by his creation when it first arrived. It's because he is a thematic little troll of kernels of wisdom. And in review, rewatching these Star Wars, it stands out even more how important he is to the enduring legacy. That's a man who loves Star Wars. Yes, I do love Star Wars. And I'm going to have a sip of water after that spiel. Um, the contrast of what we have here is great because mine are more macro. For, for my real MVP, I have the design. The costumes, the sets, the sound of the planes and the guns, the score, everything about it, the lightsabers, Darth's costume, the Jedi ropes. If it looks corny, this all falls apart. You aren't able to take any of the mumbo jumbo that they're talking about remotely. It's hard to take seriously to begin with, right? You add Even the actors were like, this is some crazy dialogue, George Lucas. So if you add on the fact that they could have potentially looked fucking ridiculous, you're cracking up because it's a joke, but it's dead serious, right? Yeah. Like if yeah. the design is not as on point as it is, the entire thing would collapse in on itself because it would be a parody of Star Wars parodies. Like it would be Spaceballs before Spaceballs without trying to be Spaceballs, you know? <laughs> So the fact that they got that so right, and uh, for as much as I don't think its pacing has aged well, its sets and costumes and effects have. Um, the aesthetic of Star Wars is, is incredible. I mean, if you even, I think one of the most impressive things is A, the way that the TIE fighters sound, and B, the way that the guns sound. However the hell they figured that out, Like the TIE Fighter hum is one of the most unique sounds in film. Like if you hear that, you know immediately what that is. But there's nothing like it on, there's nothing like, there's no sound like that on our planet. I, like a train speeding by, like I can't even put into context what that sounds like. Um, So I found myself blown away that they just not only got it right, but got so much of it right. Um, and then next I have George Lucas's trust in uh, viewers' intelligence. From the second the film starts, they're throwing planets and religions and terms and characters and all these space words at you a thousand miles per hour. And he doesn't stop for a second to explain what any of them are. Um, so and while it's still- for later, but uh, to to your point just now, uh, he showed an early cut to Brian De Palma and Steven Spielberg, and they're like, "What the fuck did I just watch, George? I have no idea what just happened." And essentially, De Palma and a little bit Spielberg created the opening crawl, and without them, there would be no exposition right up front, which helps you kind of just launch in with both feet. So that's my point, right? Like, and even to this day, I still don't know what they're talking about. 
most of most of the time. But I will say this: Han Solo says that his ship did the Kessel Run in twelve parsecs, and forty-five years later, they made a movie about that line. <laughs> that is world building at its finest. So you the want fact to know that, the uh, the best part about that, please. A parsec is a unit of distance, not time. Right, so yeah, like... incorrectly. Yeah, so... But that's sort of why it's beautiful, right? It makes no sense, but it's said so confidently. And it's so woven into the plot and the, you know, the characters and all that, that now, 50 years later, it's built an entire world. And that only works if he just does it and throws you right in. And that's exactly what he did. I mean, the imagination necessary to fuel such an expansive intergalactic world in which he does say things like, oh, we made the Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs, like without ever explaining it. I wouldn't even be able to come up with that one little tidbit, let alone the entire universe that he creates. Yep, exactly. All right, well, that's, those are two very impressive things to start. Now let's go to the Jar Jar Binks Award for the film's worst performance. This is an award renamed by you, Eric, an expertly renamed award. Now for me, it's not necessarily that he did a bad job, it's just that he get, kind of gets screwed. That would be David Prowse. Uh, Pro, I might be pronouncing it wrong, but essentially David Prowse is the guy who's in the Darth Vader suit and whose lines were dubbed over by James Earl Jones, even though nobody told him that his lines would be dubbed over. And if you ever go to YouTube and you look up uh, the undubbed Vader lines, it is so funny listening to it and seeing what it, how bad it could have been. And I feel bad for this guy because he definitely got screwed over. But at the same time, oh man, they, they made the right choice going with James Earl Jones. I never knew that because like, I always thought like, did they like, so why so did he watch the tape back and be like oh this sounds ridiculous like that plays into what i just said right the fact that he had the, the foresight to be like this doesn't quite work and then yeah, so, so david was like a bodybuilder you know who was chosen physically but like he thought this was going to be his big acting break as well and uh they needed something a little bit more domineering and needs something a little bit more gravitas and, and powerful. And James Earl Jones delivers that in spades. And I just feel bad that this guy kind of, you know, went to the screening and was like, what the fuck? Yeah. And the fact that they didn't tell him the cold world. Yeah. He, he has a famous grudge against like Lucasfilm for the, for the rest of uh, forever. So mine here is uh, the Death Star management for not realizing that Galen Erso built them a flawed Death Star. I mean, look, this is one of the most famous plot hole. Not what I mean. Could you call it a plot hole? What What would you call this? It's a physical hole. That's for sure. <laughs> all right. So it's one of the most famous. It's one of the most famous plot holes of all time, right? It's like how so much so that again they made it an entire film about it. But forget all of that. Let's put ourselves in the world, right? You're telling me that <laughs> it took them. I think like. 10, 20 years to build the thing, right? It took them a long ass time. Yeah, they start building it in Revenge of the Sith. So you're telling me during all this time, one scientist, one guy, nobody realized that he was systematically undermining everything you're doing? I mean, just one grunt construction worker looking at the plans for like that, that morning's activity, wouldn't he be like, that seems wrong. 
management from top to bottom is just obscene. I don't understand how they let that one slide. So, and the funny thing is, in the Star Wars books that are canon and like complementary material, you see how like holy shit expansive Palpatine's mind really is. Like how he's literally running an entire galaxy with everything under his thumb. Like nothing gets by him whatsoever. And uh, here he's just like, ah, yeah, I'll leave it to the uh, the construction workers. They're union, and I can trust them. Exactly. So I don't know how I, I don't. Again, like that's the thing. When you build a world this big, you're always gonna have plot holes. But yeah, forgetting about the screenwriting point of view, just yes. the actual in-world logic and failure, like. Think about it. They have ambitions of conquering the galaxy, right? And yet they, they don't even have an eye on their own crib. It's an inexcusable oversight that is embarrassingly hilarious. Yeah. But that I mean, said, I'm glad it's there because Rogue One slaps. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's, the, it's probably the best retroactive fix in cinema history, maybe. Yeah, for sure. Because it, ma- it actually makes so much sense in Rogue One. Yes, exactly. And especially with how good Rogue One is. So it gave yes. them a chance to not just explain it, but to do so in an awesome film. Yeah. Now, speaking of awesome, let's go to the Han Solo Award for the best performance from a non-Force user. And I mean, there's just no other choice but the namesake. And that is Harrison Ford, who I, mean, I think runs away with this award. Rogue Space Cowboy self-centered jerk driven only by self-interest eventually grows into the self-sacrifice hero of the rebellion who fights for freedom falls in love with the princess slash general becomes a general himself without the han solo archetype we never get robert downey jr's version of tony stark hands down i have the same thing i mean i named this one for him um you you try to think about, could this film stand without him? No. Han Solo seems to be the only charismatic character in the entire galaxy at, at this point. And his sort of freewheeling, uh, I don't believe in the Force ways, is such a good contrast. Yeah. As we just talked about, the heavy world-building mumbo-jumbo that they're just throwing at you nonstop. Meanwhile, to counterbalance that, they have the coolest character in the entire film being like, that's all bullshit. I'm doing things my way. (laughs) And I love that he's also an avatar for the greater galaxy as a whole. Remember, this is uh, 30-ish years or 20-ish years after the extinction of the Jedi. This is after a empire-run propaganda campaign to expunge any mention of the Jedi in history. So he's very much along with the times and being like the Jedi, those are some hokey, crazy wizards from back in the day that didn't really exist or whatever. Like he is not only so cool, but he's such a window into what your average everyday in universe citizen of the star Wars world would be thinking and how they would react to all this mumbo jumbo. And I just love that they also somehow managed to make vests cool. Cause that's not easy to do. Again, design, 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 right? That sort of fit, like the fact that he's wearing like a space Henley, like that's a modern style. Like like everything about like vests and the sort of slim fit pants and the boots, 
how they pulled that off in the year 1977 is incredible. I've seen those memes, like that's how girls today in like <laughs> dress during fall, they've got the vest, they've got the long sleeve, the black pants and, yeah. and uh, the uh, boots. It's a staple of style these days. And I would say, without a doubt, Harrison Ford's the second best actor on the set behind Alec Guinness, like by far. You mentioned he's the only charismatic guy in the universe. He's also one of the few like high quality actors in this series. And that's nothing against um, Carrie Fisher or Mark Hamill, but even by their own admission in later years, they were very yellow, or, sorry, very green actors at the time. You know, they were 25-ish years old. They were, this was their first big deal. They still are. I mean, look, I think... Come on, Mark Hamill's an iconic voice actor and has, has yeah. done some really cool on-screen work and yeah. was great in The Last Jedi. Okay, uh, you just said all three points that I w- was going to make, so <laughs> yes. <laughs> Literally, I tried to get... Yes, exactly, exactly. Sorry, uh, no, I do think he did his best work in his final film. But back then, it's, you know, it's, it, it's very stiff. No, it can't be. Like, I don't know. Listen, uh, and not- and. Carrie Fisher, you know, RIP, but... It was so funny because she even herself has commented in, in some of the books that she's published that she basically gave up on her British accent halfway through filming A New Hope. <laughs> I didn't even notice that. Yes, it, it, when you ever do go back to rewatch, you'll see in the first, when she's like, oh, Grand Moff talking, I can sense your smell, foul stench from aboard the ship. And then like two scenes later, she's like, oh man, we gotta go get these guys. Woo! Um, no kidding, okay. <laughs> it's very, very funny. But yeah, so Harrison Ford, Han Solo, has endured all this time, didn't need his own spinoff. No one was really asking for that, but clearly probably one of the most iconic creations from the mind of George Lucas. Yeah, I mean, does the fact that it was ba- you think no one asked for a Han Solo spinoff? I would think that, that would be a huge demand thing. I mean, there's a reason why it didn't do so hot. Be, it was a bigger it, deal here in the U.S. than it was overseas, naturally. But, but I don't think it, it was like a must-have. What What could have been if they kept uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller on? Would have been so much better, but. Let's move on to our next category and award, the Anywhere But Earth Favorite Planet Slash Locale Award. Now, I'm going classic and unsurprising with this answer. I'm going with Hoth, which, which is the ice planet in uh, uh, Empire Strikes Back. It is probably one of the most epic battles that takes place in Star Wars. It is pivotal to Luke and Han's journey as characters because Luke gets lost in the ice and and uh, basically kidnapped by the abominable snowman. And Han goes out to save him, showing how much he's grown in between movies, how selfless he's become. And it's just hilarious that he cuts open that, uh, I can't remember the, the Tauntaun, that's, that's the animal's name, shoves Luke in there and says the, like, that, that classic line, like, and you thought they smelled bad on the outside, kid. <laughs> just like Han Solo, you absolute badass. But yeah, from, from the look and design of Hoth, it's really when Star Wars began experimenting with exotic non-desert locales. It stands in stark contrast to Tatooine. And it's just this very beautiful, harrowing location in which dangerous, iconic action launches off in what is the best Star Wars movie overall. Uh, so I'm going to go with one that's not a planet per se, but it's close to being the size of a moon, and that's the Death Star. Um, I was thinking about going to Death Star. I'm glad you did. Because it's, because it's probably the most iconic locale, right? Like, 
again, just as I said, the sound of the tie, tie fighters, like if you showed someone a photo of Hoth, they might not know what it is. If you show anybody, I mean, I can't imagine a person not knowing what the Death Star is. So it's impact on a grand scale, massive. It, in terms of the films itself, it's critical to the plot of both all three of them. Of, to all three of them. It is the central uh, conflict in which our heroes are trying to stop and shut down. It has become synonymous with like an all powerful force, really. Like, I'm building a Death Star is a saying now. Yeah. Um, and it looks great. Again, it just nails, it goes back to design, design, design. The fact that it, it looks both beautiful. I mean, there's that shot in Rogue One where it comes over this, like the skyline and it just, yeah. it looks at the same time stunning, but also abjectly terrifying. And to your point, we can add one more film in which it is the central platform. So four films, the Death Star essentially supports from a narrative standpoint, but like a script plot conflict goal resolution standpoint for um, film death star looms large physically and metaphorically <laughs> it is symbolic of the monolithic oppression of which the galactic empire is built and i think you can draw a narrative through line from the opening scene of a new hope in which you have a small rebel ship going downwind in frame followed by the massive imperial battle cruiser firing upon it and that conveys every piece of information you need to know about Star Wars. Here are the good guys who are on the run and overmatched, and here are the bad guys, which are all-powerful, consuming the entire frame of the film, uh, of the opening scene. And that idea is carried over with the physical embodiment of the Death Star, which is essentially the kind of uh, American military-industrial complex stand-in for George Lucas's world. And I like that you mentioned the TIE Fighters before. I meant to say this. Now, the inspiration for Star Wars came to Lucas in many ways. One of the initial kernels that sparked the entire movie was his fascination with World War II and his idea, what if dogfights in space? And that helped. That was his, his most passionate action sequence of the first film was the dogfights. That was what the... All, the bulk of the effects budget and creative mind power went to how do we recreate this in this never before seen fashion so i always thought that was cool that he specifically clung to that specific inroad yeah definitely now smart guy smart fucking guy i'll give him that <laughs> Listen, george lucas gets a lot of flack for the prequels and we will get to that on the, the next podcast but he is a brilliant visionary you, yeah. you literally cannot argue that yeah there's no question uh, now, George Lucas is a visionary, but he's not always known for his script writing. His dialogue can be a little tin-eared from time to time. Now, having said that, of course Star Wars has some iconic lines. Now, the May the Force Be With You Award is reserved for the single best line of the original trilogy. There are so many candidates for this, so many lines that I still say on a daily basis that, that have taken on new meaning, like you said with the Death Star. But for me, I got to go back to Yoda. Do or do not. There is no try. Always with you, what cannot be done. Hear you nothing that I say. You must unlearn 
what you have learned. All right, I'll give it a try. No, try not. Do or do not. There is no try. And I believe that even though that's inherently dumb because you can just try and do or do <laughs> not, I believe it's a great philosophy in which when you set out to do something, you try to succeed, you try to accomplish that, and you don't half-ass anything. You whole-ass one thing, as Ron Swanson once said, and as we've quoted on this podcast. So big, big ups to Yoda, who's just doling out kernels of wisdom in his beautifully poetic backwards speech. I forget where and how I saw it. So this is one of my famous junk facts. But I once saw some, something explaining about like how, like the odds of him creating the Yoda language and how like it hadn't, there, there was nothing like that on earth. He literally created a new way of speaking. And then the way that he could sneak in corny lines through that character, but still have it come off as witty and charming because of the whole backwards thing. I don't, you know, it's, but mine is a little more shallow. Mine is, I know. I love you. And that is when Leia tells Han, I love you. And he just hits her with an ad-libbed, I know. And as we just said, Han is the coolest character in these films. He is probably more so than Luke and not as much as Darth. The one has the, the character that has become the most a part of our day-to-day life yeah culture um and that line is sort of him distilled in, in its purest form he is about to what he thinks could be death and the woman that he in theory does love tells him in her last words to him i love you and him in what his what could be the last words of his life his voice doesn't quiver it doesn't shake Nothing. He just says, I know. And that, that, to me, is what makes him the character that, if it were not for him and how cool he is, just like the the way that I've said, if the design was not on point, this film series collapses because every film needs that, that A1 hero, right? He's and the this, popular quarterback jock who has a soft spot for the high school nerd who tutors him. He's like, exactly. come on, bro, I'll take you to this party with me. Exactly, exactly. So he, so, and, and then that line is him at his finest. He is elementally cool. Yeah, and, that, and, and that's it right there, right? The princess, yep. sexy as hell. You're about to die. Everything is, everything, <laughs> like being chill is the last thing I'd be in that moment. Like, you have every reason to be not chill, but he is, and that's Han. And I will or, share. Or quick... Han, or Han, as he's called by his, by his friend, Lando. Yeah, as Lando, <laughs> who just insists on messing with him. It's just elementally cool. Yeah. Han, Han's, Han's a cool breeze that just rolls through. And then we got to throw a, a shout, I think, to I Am Your Father, because I would say that that's probably the most iconic Star Wars line to date. 
it's the most quoted line in pop culture history, p- perhaps. Right. But often gotten wrong. Correct? Misquoted all the time. It's not Luke, I am your father. He never says that. And it bothers me when people get it wrong. Yeah, it's crazy. No, I am your father. Yep. No, that's impossible. Yeah, not, not the best acting in that scene, I'll tell you that. All right, well, speaking of big moments or big characteristics and, and aspects of the Star Wars original trilogy, the Rewind That Real Quick Award has to go to something that is deserving of a second look. And for me, I'm going with the most famous blooper in Star Wars, in maybe movie history, and that is when a group of stormtroopers are entering the control room in A New Hope, and one stormtrooper in the back right of the the group just smacks his head on the top of the door ceiling, and they left that cut in the final version of the film for some hilarious reason. And the backstory is even better. So, you know, it's like a day actor who's trying to bust into the industry. Some guy calls in sick. His agent calls this guy. He's like, what are your measurements? We need you. We potentially have a gig for you for like an all day thing. You're in a costume. Sends him his measurements, gets the job, goes on set. Whatever the original guy had, this guy catches. He says he was in the bathroom four times before... See, uh, before filming that scene, like just stomach all messed up. And this was like the second or third take in which he's like, I'm going to shit my pants in this expensive costume that they gave me. And he wasn't paying attention, smacked his head, just assumed though that he, that the angle was, was too wide for them to see him and that they wouldn't use it anyway. And of course is immortalized in cinema history for being the dumbest stormtrooper in the galaxy. But that's sort of part of its charm, right? You know, yes. it's all builds into the sort of lore of how, of how this, of probably the biggest popcorn franchise that we have, how it was really started at these humble beginnings. Yeah, with, people don't realize Literal that. shit like that. Yeah, it, it, this was an elevated B-movie that became more than what its initial ambitions were. Yep. So for mine, I have when, uh, when Luke and Darth in Empire... I don't know if unsheath is the right word, but turn on that it's a, a you know it's probably it's the most silhouettes. yeah gorgeous it, just the contrast of the red and blue the good and bad mm-hmm. it is pound for pound one of the most beautiful shots in, in all the films both in terms of aesthetics and theme and plot you know this is the first time that they face off uh, two of the most iconic Star Wars characters of all time. Uh, using two of the most famous film weapons of all time. Um, again, it's aged incredibly well. I know they've retouched it up a thousand and one times, but uh, that is sort of, if you had to like, if I had to frame one Star Wars shot in my house, that would be it. Yeah, and like you said, the visual language of that scene, darkened silhouettes, smoke billowing all around them red lightsaber ignited blue lightsaber ignited we have good versus evil you could show a three-year-old that scene and say which one's the good guy which one's the bad guy and they would be able to pick it out it conveys every piece of information you need to know while looking beautifully haunting yep and it's so funny too because you know the transitions in Star Wars that have also been used in The Mandalorian? They're called wipes, in which the screen either goes you know, all the way one way or all the way down, like, like you were wiping with a, one of those things that you clear your windshield with. That is considered 
extremely tacky and hokey and cheesy in the filmmaking world. But it works within Star Wars and within The Mandalorian because it's become such a patented piece of their visual language. It has become part of the charm, as you mentioned, as this B-movie aesthetic that elevates beyond its initial ambitions. Yeah, I mean, it, it looks like a PowerPoint, right? Like that's yeah. sort of the vibe that you get from it. Before PowerPoints were even a thing. Yeah, right. Now, in terms of, we keep talking about these iconic elements, but there's really only a few key things if we had to be forced to choose that we would want to save and preserve. So this is the Put This in the Jedi Temple Award. And it's for any characteristic aspect, strategic decision that you think needs preserving. Like if the asteroid from uh, Armageddon comes and hits Earth, this is the piece of cinema detail that we save. Now for me, it's a little bit macro, but I'm going with industrial light and magic. And that is the visual effects company that George Lucas started for the sole purpose of making his Star Wars movies. These are groundbreaking visual effects creations that have literally redefined the limits of our imagination for more than 40 years. They were, it was founded in 1975 by George Lucas. It has now created some of the most memorable visual effects in history, not only in Star Wars, which changed cinema forever in terms of the scope and visual uh, creativity of a blockbuster film, but also there is no Pixar without ILM because that was the creative engine behind that studio, which has obviously become a powerhouse in its own right. ILM has been used in countless blockbusters, including Avatar in terms of recent-ish history. And we perhaps do not have visual effects and by extension CGI, if not for George Lucas making this decision in 1975. So its impact on cinema is arguably unparalleled in the 20th century. And it continues to this day, right? As you yeah. brought up at the top of this pod, how Mandalorian is breaking ground with the tech that they use. So it's continuing that sort of Star Wars tradition of pushing the genre forward, which is something that I put huge weight into. Like these uh, things did not exist before George Lucas went and just thought that shit up. Exactly. So, and then for mine, I'm going with the Force. Um, the Force is the central drama of what's been, what, nine or ten films now. Um, it is the distillation of good versus bad. It is a way to both explain characters' feelings and their power, how in touch with the Force they are, both lends to how strong they are, but how spiritual they are. Yeah. It is one of, and as I've sort of talked about on this pod, it's one of the things that's permeated through the culture, right? The idea of the force is something that sort of exists in our own world, right? Karma and stuff like that. It is an incredibly cool power. Who among us has not wanted to yeah. have force powers, the mind tricks, uh, to move stuff with your mind. All of that stuff has pretty much been the engine of Star Wars since the day it started. And we're not sure where it's gonna go from here. I mean, it's about to start to play a big role in Mandalorian, bigger than it did in uh, the first season. 
it's name checked in the season two trailer. Yeah. Um, and that's something that that you know he tangibilized the classic good versus bad. Who among us has not been laying on the couch in a super comfortable position and not try to force move the remote to us so we didn't have to move? When I was a kid, when I would go into stores that would slide uh, yes. for me, I would put out my hand and I would pretend like I have the force. I'm so, 28 years old and I still do that. So yeah. I, see no, I see no problems there. Exactly. All right, moving on to the Rebel Alliance Award for the best hero moment. Now to me and to most people, Empire Strikes Back is the best movie of the franchise. But my favorite sequence in the entire saga and any other you know, additional content that has ever been created. And what I think of when I hear the words Star Wars is the entire scene of Luke confronting Vader and the Emperor in Return of the Jedi. Welcome, young Skywalker. I have been expecting you. You no longer need those. Guards, leave us. I'm looking forward to completing your training. In time, you will call me master. You're gravely mistaken. You won't convert me as you did my father. Oh no, my young Jedi. You will find that it is you who are mistaken about a great many things. It is so sweeping and epic. It pays off on a trilogy's worth of buildup. And while this isn't always a friendly, critical word, it is a supremely satisfying conclusion to the overall arc that I believe it is the signature moment and sequence of Star Wars, even though the I am your father reveal is probably the mainstream normal answer you'd get to that question. This is to me what embodies everything that is Star Wars. He completes his Jedi training, becomes the, the Jedi Knight he was always meant to be, saves Darth Vader, brings him back to the light, disposes of the Emperor, and essentially sets the galaxy on a course correction of peace. And how did he do it? by just maintaining his sense of morality, by believing in his father and refusing to do what is easy, which would be killing and giving into his hate and aggression. You say that the Force is kind of the distillation of Star Wars. I think this is the distillation of what the Force's lessons were. So I have the same one. I was more, I, I zoomed in more on uh, Darth's choice to save Luke. Yeah. Um, because I think not only, I mean, Darth, Vil Darth Villain, Darth Vader is thought That's of- That's an as, appropriate name. Darth Vader is thought of as one of the most iconic villains of all time. Um, so I can't imagine the surprise being, you know, seeing that when it came out to watch him turn good after him being synonymous with abject terror, like just complete terror and fear. Um, and again, it sort of uh, completes the arc of not just Luke, but really Star Wars as a whole. Yeah. Um, light and dark, good versus bad. And 
you know, it, it's, it's not, it's not corny. I don't want to say corny. It's the best kind of corny, right? Like it's, it's, uh, endearing. I always think the net positive of corny is endearing. Perfect. Thank you, Brandon. Exactly <laughs> that. It is, it is while you know, it is hokey and probably not how things would shake out when I'm going to see a star Wars film, that's what you want. And that's where it started. Tell your sister. You are right. <laughs> and I will say though, like he, like that is a scene where it's like it doesn't particularly look that great, but yet I, I still think it all works. It's I think it's beautiful in its simplicity. You know, you have Luke hiding in the shadows when uh, Darth Vader's like, "Sister, your thoughts betray you again," and he's like, "No!" <laughs> and he comes out of the shadows just swinging. Like I, I think it's such an atmospheric. Uh, whole entire mood, whole entire vibe in that scene that really goes to show you and kind of actualize Luke resisting the darkness and Vader coming back to the light. And I think it's done in a really great way that it is endearing and, and hokey and cheesy and amazing. And, and I do love Luke's brash, angry, aggressive swings with his lightsaber where you see that he's close to abandoning the ideals that Obi-Wan and Yoda instilled in him. And, you know, to see Vader value something more than than everything he has become i I love the conversation prior where he's like i'm afraid it is too late for me my son but it wasn't and and luke's belief in him convinced him that it that it wasn't that there was something worth saving and worth reaching back to his past before he was this you know more more machine than man these days man i love star wars just talking about it all right We've talked a lot about the good. We've talked a lot about the bad, but let's crystallize the bad. What's the worst thing you can say about this movie, Eric? That they bore me. Oh, wow. That, that is a harsh indictment. Hit me. So as I've said on this podcast, I like the, I've always felt that I like the idea of Star Wars more than Star Wars itself. And I think a critical, critical key to enjoying these films the way that you do is seeing it at the right age. Yeah. Um, as I've talked about watching old films, and this is not a good trait that I have, um, especially considering how films have changed and how much more meaningful they were back then. But it's hard for me to go beyond reasonable doubt when films look as old as this one does. I have a hard time enjoying the action when it looks as old as it does. Now, as I've said, the design of it is great, but the actual fluid nature of it, like when on Hoth, he takes down the walker and and flies around his legs. To me, uh, you know, I probably saw this for the first time when I was 10 or 12, it looked like toys. And so that's how it's always felt to me since. And then therefore, because I'm not sold on the set pieces, everything in between it's just filler right like it's not i'm not getting from one big moment to the next that's why i enjoy in empire the luke versus darth battle because it's action but it's it's not trying to do too much it, it it's aged well um i found myself you know slogging through it in a sense um while i was impressed with a piece here and there as an overall film I don't think that, like, the fact that Empire Strikes Back is thought of as one of the greatest films of all time is beyond me. 
I think a key is being there at the time. So my point is, I think for, for particularly the, the, the first five Star Wars films, for them to work, you need to, you need to show them to your kids as a young child. If they are aware of how effects are supposed to look by the time they see it, I worry about how it's going to age. I do, because that's how I've always felt. I, I've told you this, that I haven't, I didn't really connect to Star Wars until Rogue One. And I think a lot of that has to do with both its age in set pieces and its age in pacing. Do you think had the original Star Wars trilogy come out in like the 90s or early 2000s, do you think you would have been one of the super fans? Because you do love sci-fi and this mode of storytelling. Yes, I do. I 100% do. And that's why I love Mando and Rogue One because that is the, I've said those are the beginnings of me finally getting it. Like I finally, in my late 20s, have begun to understand the Star Wars appeal because it's, themes and technology have finally caught up to my age yeah i think that's fair I as think it currently it exists bottom line it just feels old and that's hard to overcome no matter how many you know i famously my mom and dad i don't like ketchup right and they'll always ask me like why not but why not and i'll be like trust me i've tried thousands of times to like ketchup i've sat there and i put it on burgers and french fries but I just don't like it. And the original Star Wars trilogy, I like the idea of it more than its actual on-paper product. I don't like ketchup either. So I respect <laughs> you on that one. Listen, I'm on, as much as I love Star Wars, I can't hold that against you because I understand the barrier of access. There are certain old classic movies that may have been, may still be masterpieces, but when it's a five minute wide shot, that is unchanging for, you know, an entire conversation, I just lose focus because the outmoded filmmaking strategies and approaches do not mirror what I essentially grew up with and experience every day. I, I cannot say that that is an unfair criticism on your part or that you're not allowed to feel that way about something that is uh, iconic and, and masterful because it's hard. It's hard when you are so used to and ingrained to one style to to go backwards it is so and i will say that and i will say you will be spared in the purge thank you thank you because i knew going at your king would be a would would be a tough shot to take but and i will say that that doesn't just extend to the first three right i think episodes one and two both fall to that same fate the idea was too big for the tech that they had at the time it wasn't at least for some for someone my age it wasn't until revenge of the sith that the cg finally started to catch up with what i was used to and then therefore i had begun to be able to immerse myself in these worlds the way that my father and you have it is so funny to think in 30 years what beloved properties from the 90s, 2000s, and 2010s that you and I have probably covered on this pod that don't stand the test of time. Yeah. I mean, post-credit pod, 50-year anniversary. we got to revisit something that hasn't aged well. So as a huge Star Wars fan, I would say the worst thing I could say about the original trilogy is that for the most part, it is pretty terrible, perfunctory dialogue. And 
even though it was always a kid-friendly blockbuster franchise meant to sell toys, it too fully embraced consumerism with the introduction of the Ewoks and like the downslide of Return of the Jedi, which I love, but is clearly a wobbly conclusion to the trilogy. So I would say that was kind of some of its undoing, and that has also carried over to both the prequels and the sequel trilogy. The unbridled embracement of consumerism. You can still make a great blockbuster movie with McDonald's tie-ins that doesn't have to go so far in that direction. You know what I mean? I mean, and that's still its faults, kind of, right? It still yeah. has those, those same flaws. Prequel and sequel trilogy struggle from that as well, for sure. But what's the nicest thing you can say about this movie now? As, as someone who has been a, an understandably harsh critic in certain areas. I think it's one of the most important pieces of American, and this is going to be a broad term here, but it is deserving of this. One of the most important pieces of American art of all time. It is, it is sort of paved the way for big budget filmmaking that you and I both know and love. It has, as you said, created a way of doing things you make films to to make toys now is that good or bad i'm not one to say but is it important absolutely it is sci-fi at its when it's at its best it is sci-fi at its best it has inspired generations upon generations to both engage in the content but create it themselves god knows how many franchises and tv shows and films that you and i love exist because that person saw saw and had their mind blown by these films when they they were kids so i think if you zoom out as far as possible and look at its impact on who we are and what and how we know pop culture star wars is probably the most impactful piece of content of all time, maybe. Yeah, I mean, my comments mirror yours pretty much exactly. Star Wars redefined blockbuster cinema. A New Hope, along with Superman the movie, which came one year after, cemented science fiction as the hottest bankable mainstream genre when done to its absolute ceiling. Star Wars has influenced every major filmmaker of the last 50 years in, in one way or another. And I think you don't endure as a blockbuster concept that supports multimedia franchises for decades unless you have the foundation of true groundbreaking greatness. And the fact that there are so many different Star Wars projects in the works under Disney and that this has continued this narrative propulsion thrust forward in terms of storytelling speaks to how beloved the central idea really is. Movies, TV, cartoons, comic books, games, yeah. toys, everywhere. N novels. Yeah. Everything. Dirts. So I think I know your answer after this whole conversation, but if you catch this on cable, are you watching? <sighs> Probably not. I may pop in for a scene or two if it's at the right time, but am I going to sit down and, and, and watch this one? No, unfortunately not. And I know that that's like almost shocking to say, but that's the truth. I mean, listen, it's the first recorded human opinion to be wrong. It's okay. <laughs> I'm, of course, watching this on cable. I mean, listen, I've said all the reasons why. I don't need to rehash them again. Now, the last category of stuff we think that is cool that needs mentioning, usually this is kind of our trivia category. All three of my fun facts I said throughout our conversation. So if you have anything, hit. 
Good. Mine is I want to ask you something. Explain to me the whole problem with the Greedo thing. Oh, you mean like Han Shot first? Please. I, I need to get it. Please. So in the, the theatrical version in 1977, Greedo sits down and is like, I'm taking you in. He goes, okay, and just blasts his ass, right? Han shoots him. Han shoots first. That's like the whole the whole thing. Like, And you're like, whoa, this guy's a fucking badass. And in retrospect, George Lucas, with his endless tinkering, decided like, no, one of our heroes can't be that malicious and savage. So he made it that Greedo shot first and somehow missed a point blank shot. That's why you see like the, the, the laser bolt kind of whiz past Han's head. And now Han is shooting in self-defense when in actuality, no, this guy was like, Han, you're coming with me. And he goes, no, I'm not. Bam, you're dead. Wow. And so this was like a shoot first, ask questions later type of badass smuggler. Okay. I've People always been curious because it's such bad. a big deal. It's such a big deal, right? And I've never got it because I guess I've only, when did he go back and change it? I, I think in the early 80s is when he start, when he began tinkering with previous <laughs> released versions. And it's so funny because Harrison Ford is a famous curmudgeon of a human being. And I, I do mean that truly in like a charming, endearing way. But there's a great clip of, um, of him on the Force Awakens press tour and an interviewer going, so like Harrison, you got to settle this. Did Han shoot first? And he just like leans into the microphone and goes, I don't care. <laughs> and then just leans back out. And like, that's all he says. Oh, man. Harrison Ford, what, yeah, so, as you love to say, a barrel of laughs that guy is. That guy, he's a special type of old curmudgeon. So yeah, that's And the I whole think it's thing. funny how in real life he's not that good of a pilot. Yeah, I, I think people were like, <laughs> this is becoming like a, hey, we need to take grandma's license. <laughs> All right, well, so that is it for our original trilogy rewind. Be sure to tune in next week when we're hitting the next two episodes of The Mandalorian and going to the prequels. Dun, dun, dun. <sighs> Man. Uh, if you thought this was a slog, holy shit, do I feel bad for you. I know, I know, I know. But now it's good to know that we're going to look at these films as a whole and not per film, so I don't have to dive in that much, but I could just sort of watch them and then look at them yeah. as a total and not have to dive into, like, the details. Too much of a holistic, you know. But I will say Revenge of the Sith is going to be my favorite one that we've talked about so far. So it is going to be, yeah. I hate you so much right now. Why? Is that one not thought of as a no, good No, Revenge one? of the Sith is thought of as the best of the prequels, but I, I think all the prequels are terrible. That's what I think. Nobody Some... has to agree with me. And I agree that it's the best of the prequels, but that's like saying, like, this was my least painful kidney stone. I've got to send you the clip. Find it as soon as we're, we're done here. Somebody dubbed the... I have the high ground scene with the voices of Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse, and it's the most incredible thing I've ever heard. I would definitely like to see that. Actually, actually you know what? I'll put some of it in this podcast as Perfect. well. Perfect. Look at this effort that Eric's putting in for all you <laughs> listeners. Thank him on Twitter, at Eric underscore Ital. Thank me for being the curmudgeon of the Star Wars critics, at great underscore Catsby, and follow Pod at Pod on Twitter, baby. All right. Brandon, I know. It's over, I have the high ground. You underestimate my power. Don't try it. You're the chosen one. 
It was said that you would destroy the city, not join them, burn relics of the force, not leave it in darkness. I hate you. You were my brother, Anakin. I loved you.